Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. It's true. I'm Rich Kimball. He's Kerry Haskell. This is Downtown, the podcast. Episode, uh, looks like 148. My goodness, where does the time go? We're uh, brought to you this week, every week, by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Joining you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. It's where we do our daily show downtown, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 Eastern Time. The Zone Radio Stations of Maine out there on the interwebs at WZONAM.com, downtownwithrichkimball.com. A couple of very interesting conversations this week on the podcast. In the second half, uh, author and Bangor, Maine native Mamiv Medwed talks about her terrific new book called Minus Me, all about a woman who uh, realizes the end of her life is quickly approaching and the steps that she takes to prepare her family for life, well, minus me. And it's kind of a dour topic, but actually the book has got a lot of humor in it and uh, an interesting conversation with novelist Mamiv Medwed coming up in the second half. First half of the podcast this week, well, a frequent visitor to our radio show, to the podcast, and and Carrie, no stretch to say that he's absolutely one of our favorite people to talk to because, uh, as we've learned through the years, he is just, uh, first of all, about as down-to-earth, as as nice a person as you'd ever hope to talk to, and then coupled with that is just an amazing storyteller. Yeah, absolutely. His storytelling ability is is so much more and i think probably a big contribution to his success as an actor too because no matter how small the topic he he can weave a story that just absolutely entrances you you mean like squirrels squirrels <laughs> a little tease <laughs> of what's ahead is that steven tobolowski joins us on downtown the podcast it's not for me to say he's our favorite guest because well you have decided it He's the reigning Downtown Madness champion, the only two-time winner. We're so happy to welcome back Stephen Tobolowski. Hello, Stephen. Well, hello, Rich. I'm very happy to be here. And I thought if I won, I thought if I won that award for Downtown, I was supposed to get a big old shiny belt like the wrestlers got. Did you send that because I never got that? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, the mail has been a bit disrupted because of COVID. Uh, everybody's blaming COVID these days, but I expect to see that shiny belt before I lose it this year. See, now you want, but Brian Cranston wanted a trophy when he won. Uh, you won a belt. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, when you come back to Bangor, when you and okay. Ann are back here, we will, we'll have a belt for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> What's been going on? What have you been up to during these interesting times? Uh, gosh, well, so so the studio's pretty much closed down around a little around Thanksgiving, except for Goldberg's. So over at Sony Studios, I've done about six of the Goldberg shows, uh, one one of which had uh, a COVID crisis. Uh, Wendy and I were doing a scene one afternoon, and the ADs run on and said, there's been a COVID break in the studio, a COVID break in the studio. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. He says, everybody out of here, everybody out of here. It was it was like some sort of air raid drill. So we run out in outside, and, and we're all huddled together, which seems like we're not social distancing in our terror. <laughs> and then the AD says, everybody go home. 
and we'll call you at home and tell you what all this means. So it was a very unpleasant car ride home. And then we found out that one of the stand-ins had COVID. And so what they had to do was get everybody off of the stage, decontaminate everything. And, and then Wendy and I came back the next morning and finished, finished the scene. And it got me thinking as to what a professional actor is. Like, I, I run into people all the time who, who want to be actors. This last show we did, which had no COVID break in it, I had a call time of six in the morning, which meant I had to wake up at about 4.15 and drive to the studio, get my makeup and everything. Yeah, I don't have to worry about my hair getting done. They just kind of polish the top of my head. <laughs> and and we, we get up, we start rehearsing at about 6.50 in the morning. They set up the cameras. We start shooting about 7.15, 7.20. And I'm thinking, this is kind of what a professional actor is. They don't teach this in the schools. You know, they, they teach you animal exercises and mirror exercises. And what you really have to do to be a professional actor is you have to be able to do a comedy scene when there is a COVID emergency and you run out, then you have to come back and finish that scene in the morning. You have to do a comedy scene at 7.20 in the morning. You have to be funny. And then I had a second scene the next day in which I had to perform with asses, asses, uh, <laughs> real, real asses. And I think I, I can't differentiate between donkey or ass. It was real donkeys or asses. I'm, I'm from Texas, <laughs> so I'm familiar with asses. And Mary Lambert was our director. She's from Arkansas. She's very familiar with asses. And so now, now Stephen, would they be would they be considered dangerous animals back in the days of the Dangerous Animals Club? What I know about what I know about horses and what I know about donkeys, they would very much be considered dangerous, especially if you're doing comedy with them. <laughs> so the, the the stage people kept trying to move the asses closer to me. So I got the rear end of one ass about three feet away from me and the head of the other ass about three feet away from me. And I had this. I'm supposed to come out of my office as Principal Ball and be very upset. And I go, donkeys, donkeys, this is a school, not a trip down the Grand Canyon. So I, I'm supposed to come out of the office and do this. But I know, <laughs> being familiar with horses and asses, that if I come out and I say that to that donkey that's facing me, the donkey who wasn't facing me was going to kick me. Mm, right. You know, so as a professional actor, you have to know how to get your lines across without getting murdered by asses kicking you to death in a pretend school hallway. That's part of being a professional actor, too. That's not so the kind of thing Uta Hagen ever talked about. No, no. And it makes you rethink your whole life, like, what am I doing here? You know, what? why, why am I still doing this? But it, it is... I've been doing that, which has been lovely. I've been sitting in the yard. Uh, our garden loves the pandemic. Our garden absolutely loves it for whatever reason. And 
things have been growing beautifully. Uh, Anne has been cooking a lot. I, I don't know. Our last visit, the pandemic had begun, I believe. Yes. But and did we discuss my my diet? What my diet well, had become? We did, no. we talked about the fact that you were eating a lot of homegrown food, and and Anne is baking. So I begin every morning with homemade sweet rolls, right. cinnamon rolls. <laughs> I we have homemade. Now she's gone into sourdough bread. So homemade sourdough bread. We have muffins, what she calls a uh, lemon pancake muffins, and so I eat this from about six. Six six thirty in the morning to about three in the afternoon. <laughs> I eat muffins and cinnamon rolls, and then I start drinking gin at about four o'clock, <laughs> and that carries me through the rest of the evening. And guys, <laughs> I have lost about fifteen pounds. Wow! So I'm thinking I may be on to another book here, <laughs> the, the Tobolowski COVID Diet Book. People would kill. To, and and I'm not sure why I've lost the weight, but Anne again, Anne is cooking things from the garden as well. I think it's we eat so much less than going to restaurants. Mm. Maybe that's it. That the amount of food we're taking in is so small, even though the amount of food we're taking in is sourdough bread and fresh made cinnamon rolls. Oh my gosh, they're so good. Um. We have coffee with cats in the morning. That's a routine that the cats actually began. So <laughs> we, we, we fill up the coffee at about 6, 6.15. I load up with the cinnamon rolls and Ann and I head to the den and then the cats arrive and they demand to be petted. And Ann and I sit like civilized people across from one another and we discuss what we're going to do with our day, which usually is... Nothing. We, we have <laughs> nothing really planned. That's the odd thing about the pandemic is there's nothing to do, but you still can't get it done. Yeah, that's that's for sure. We're it, talking. It, there's no way. There's no way. And, and we have coffee with cats. And then we're talking <laughs> about starting wine with felines. Oh, yeah. At, uh, later in the afternoon when I'm drinking gin. So I don't know if gin and wine mix, but we'll find out. That, that's the next thing we're planning for the pandemic. <laughs> we're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. Now, you've been doing uh, some some virtual theater, you and Anna, with the Road Theater Company and some wonderful productions that, they, that you've both been involved in and keeping those creative juices flowing. And, and I'll tell you, the, the arts community nationwide has really stepped up. It's been a challenge, but finding ways to keep doing wonderful things, entertaining the audience, but also doing what you do. Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's so difficult. We we've been involved with a new play festival in which Anne has been. I think she directed two of the plays. I was in one of them uh, and out of I think there were about 30 plays of, of new plays. Then there was what they called the Road Theaters Under Construction Festival. This was a group of, I believe, like about 10 plays that were still in the process of being written in which I participated as an actor in one of them and Anne also directed. And now, oh man, this is really stepping it up to a new level. Anne is directing uh, Steve Yockey's play Reykjavik, which is a wonderful, extraordinary play, but they're going to take it a step further as opposed to just doing it on Zoom 
which which to me is like looking at security cameras at a department store. <laughs> but but it's like, you know, you're watching this play on Zoom. They're really going to go into the theater. This is all with COVID protocol, tons of COVID protocol. They're going to, you know, the theater is going to be cleaned out. The actors are going to be on stage and they're going to rehearse with masks on, with, with shields. They're going to bring in a professional film crew. In fact, Robert Brinkman, who did Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, is going to be our DP with Andy Patsoigl, who was our producer on Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday. They're going to come in with their cameras, their camera operators. And in the theater, they're going to film a real theatrical performance. In other words, the actors have learned their lines. They're not reading their lines on the screen. They're going to be interacting. They're going to be kissing. They're going to be fighting. They're going to do everything that happens in this play with strict COVID protocols and that all the actors are going to be tested like every other day, like we do on Goldberg's. Everybody's going to be tested. Everybody is going to be quarantined so it's safe. And then we're going to film it. And they're going to put that out. And that will be the next step. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, do you, what's going to happen with theater? Because we see how tough it is with movies. Uh, with people going to movies, are they going to sit six feet apart? The question is, what are you going to do with theater mm -hmm. when the people sitting next to you? You can't have them six feet apart and really have a theater audience. What play are you going to go see importance of being earnest before the world is safe again? I don't think so. What theatrical experience is going to get you to take that kind of chance? And I think I take my head off to all of these writers, directors, uh, all the people creating the sets, all the technicians working at Zoom at the road theater and all these other theaters, they are struggling to keep it going. Right. I, I feel like sometimes we're in Lord of the Rings and we're just trying to light the bonfires to say, come on, we got to just keep it going for a little while longer before it dies out because I, I just don't know how, it's, how and when it's going to come back to normal. By the way, we love the new season of the Tobolowsky Files. Uh, it's hard to pick a favorite, but gosh, they were all so great this year. I think it was my favorite season, and I love the way uh, you and David structured it so we got something brand new every week. Yeah, we. I. that's another thing the pandemic was good for, was, was for writing. And David made me stop at 16. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I was still going. And he said, Tubbo, Tubbo, I, let, let's just get these out there. Let's just finish these. So I was able to write and record the stories on my own during the pandemic. Then I send them to David. And then David and I, together, we do the intros and outros. And David edits together. I send David the music. He edits the music into the show. And we were able to stay ahead of the chainsaw. I always viewed the Tobolowsky files as a form of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie <laughs> in which David Chin is Leatherface. Sorry, David. <laughs> and I am Marilyn Burns running from him in the forest. And because I had to get a new story out every week. And we did that. Oh, gosh, Rich. We did that for like 
I, I want to say about 40 episodes in a row, we did one episode a week that I was writing, recording, getting it out there and writing. This time I was able, I was able to write and it also helped me in writing in that not panicking, I was able to create more of a kind of structured, unstructured through line for this season right? in a way sort of based around that Carl Jung book I read that absolutely freaked me out. And I don't know if it's too much of a tease or too much of a bore. Should I mention what that was? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, it was. So Carl Jung, you know, he, he was a companion of Sigmund Freud and sometimes a competitor. And I guess he was big in 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. Anyway, in 1933, he went to see a gallery display of artwork done by the alchemists, by various alchemist scientists and artists in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, right? So we're talking about 13, 14, 1500s, right? We're in 1933. And Jung is shocked when he goes into this art exhibit and there on the wall, he sees these mystical paintings. He sees a painting that is the exact replica of a dream that one of his patients told him that week while they were on the couch. So how is it that this dream could reflect something that was done as a work of art that this person never saw? The, the, the client never saw these antique works of art. And I'm reading this story. And then in the book, they have the picture of the work of art. And it was a dream I had mm. in the 1980s. The same image, the same picture, the dream I had in the 1980s when I was, uh, oh man, I was, I was living with Beth and I had a dream that I was killed on a plane crash. And I landed in a park and a woman, a beautiful woman came up to me with this veil on and she explains to me that I had died. And she tries to calm me down because I'm of course crying in my dream. And I said, but I have so many people I have to talk to, so many people I have to see. And she says, don't worry, time is different here. All the people you love will be here in a few minutes. Now. You can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You don't have to eat at all. You, you can sleep. You can go visit the other people that are here. And I can describe the face of that woman from the 1980s on. And when I saw this painting from the 1400s, it was the same woman. <laughs> and there was a man at her feet looking up to her kind of in anguish and she was explaining. And then Jung in his description was saying, this is a portrait of a uh, short afterlife, someone who's passed away and encounters a female figure clothed like, and I'm going, this is what I had in the eighties. And so the idea of this season of the podcast is in terms of what is the nature of man stories that connect us to not only 
things that happened in our past, but are we motivated by things that have happened from the distant past that are beyond us? And are we in action creating a future that we are unaware of? So, but again, they're all true stories, true stories of um, TV shows and movies and love and life and children and heartbreak and triumph. Uh, typical Tobolowsky file stuff, but with that Carl Jung sort of through line. Well, yes, and with that incredible power of of connections, and and I guess regardless of whatever your belief system it might be, a a wonderful sort of symmetry to all of it. Right, right. Um, and and the unexpected people that kind of come. I talk in the some of the stories about my dreams, and mention some of the dreams that prompted various events in my life. Some are highly regretful, uh, but I, I found – here, here's a, a brief example I know. It's from the story Ghost Rider in that I – people ask me all the time, when did you become being a, a writer? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. When did I become a writer? When did I become a professional writer? That was in college because people hired me to write their papers for them. And so I would write, and I ended up writing master's theses and doctor's dissertations. I think I charged something like $400 for a master's thesis and $1,200 for a dissertation. And I would get writing samples from the people and they would all ask me, they go like, well, you know, $400 is a lot of money. How good of a writer are you? And I said, that's not the question. The question is, how good of a writer are you? You see, I need three writing samples from you, and I'm going to try to imitate those writing samples and be as good as you are, but maybe just a little bit better. <laughs> so the teacher will feel like they did a good job. And I so I tell the story of the beginning of my professional writing career and I end up writing a play and I'm not going to spoil this one. I end up writing a play uh, as a master's thesis for, for someone who was looking for an education degree. And I said, well, you know, I'm in the theater and I always wanted to be a playwright. So you have to promise me you will not produce this play. This play cannot be produced. You know, you can use it for the grade. That's fine. And then the story continues in a most unexpected unexpected (laughs) way as to what happens when we do things in the past, what happens in the future. And, and the, the ripple effect, a simple, a simple negotiation like writing a play in the past can have on several people's lives in the future. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories, Ghost Rider. Uh, and it's a yeah. wonderful, all I'll say is it's a wonderful payoff when, when things come back around. Yeah, that, that is, <laughs> it's for sure. <laughs> and, you, you know, I, I, had, uh, I have a lot of fans around the world with the Tobolowsky files, and they're always on the Internet trying to scope stuff out because sometimes I don't give names. I don't in ghost Rider, I don't give real names of anybody, 
but I put the story out there and I'll be damned. Some of these geniuses who have nothing but time on their hands on the internet <laughs> went back and found evidence <laughs> of this play. Oh. Found <laughs> evidence of it in various newspapers. <laughs> in wow. various newspapers with photographs. Oh my God. I can't I I have to give a huge shout out to the Tobolowski Files fans because they are on me nonstop with with uh, BS detectors trying to see because some of my stories are ridiculous, you know, but but they're true. And and I like I'd like to be kept honest for this. I, I really do. Uh, you also brought back for me wonderful memories involving Pillsbury cinnamon rolls. Gosh, yeah. Pillsbury cinnamon rolls. Now, when when I was a little boy, that was the Pillsbury. My mother made Pillsbury cinnamon rolls for us. I think Wednesday was cinnamon roll morning and you could smell them as she was baking them in the oven. Now, the problem with the Pillsbury cinnamon rolls, as I recall, is, you know, it's a can of dough. It, it's this gooey tube of dough and you pull them out and you stick them in a round pan, and then it has one little tin of sugar frosting you put on the top and it melts. Oh gosh, it's so good. But there are eight of them. There are eight cinnamon rolls. And we had three children, three children in the family. So it became, it became a real lesson in mathematics and also the unfair nature of our society. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> our sister who was the youngest was certainly going to get screwed uh my brother paul older than me he believed he was the oldest he should get three cinnamon rolls because he is a growing boy i believed i was the middle deprived child so i was special i should get three and the barbie was too young to really care she should get the two we learned that it don't work that way. <laughs> and uh, the entire family dynamic changed around the cinnamon rolls and my mother's solution to the cinnamon roll question. But but hey, here's another example that isn't in a podcast. It affected Anne. It affected my dear wife, Anne. And when she makes cinnamon rolls on Friday, she makes... <laughs> a number of cinnamon rolls for not only me and her, but she makes cinnamon rolls for our son, Robert, who now has a young one. I am a grandfather yes, now. That's right. And, and so Robert and Dejeuner, that's his wife. They come over with little Dior and they take cinnamon rolls too. And Anne wants to make sure because of the cinnamon roll story from the past, <laughs> from, you know, I'm almost 70. So we're talking about 65 years ago, the cinnamon roll controversy. The cinnamon roll controversy has affected my wife, Anne, here in the present. And she wants no such, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no such bickering around our home. There will be cinnamon rolls for all, male, female, young, or old. That's wonderful. Now, uh, b before we let you go, I would be rem remiss if I didn't ask about uh, the squirrels. Are, are they back? Are they coming around still? We we have, we do have squirrels. And we have, you know, we had the greatest squirrel in the world, 
Violetta right. was magnificent. I, I can't talk about her in glowing enough terms. She was a brilliant squirrel. She would come to our back door and lift her little head up and kind of look back and forth and look sad. And I would get a bag of nuts and put them on the bench. And she would very generously step back, not be weird squirrel behavior, wait till all <laughs> the nuts were dispatched onto that bench. Then I would close the door and she'd look at me and sort of, is it all right now? And then she would go up and feast on those nuts. <laughs> well, I think Violetta, we didn't see her for several months. So I figured she may have passed away and it breaks my heart, but I think she has had children because now this year during the pandemic, we have had baby squirrels, young squirrels come to the bench and they wait at the foot of the bench. And I'm going like, is this something she said on her squirrel deathbed <laughs> in her squirrel sort of way saying, there is a feasting bench down by the house where the piano plays and the people seem to exercise for no reason at all. Wait by the window and the big, big, tall thing will come out and give you nuts. <laughs> and these little squirrels, they are the cutest things in the world, but there are squirrel wars. And they line up on the wall for me to put the nuts out on the bench. And the reason I think they are Violetta's children is that Violetta had a very special characteristic. Her left ear had a notch in it, had a little curled notch in it. These three little squirrels have the curly notch in their ear too. And I think like, could it be, ah, Jung again, the generations passing wisdom on. I, I'll finish up. I can finish off with this. There is something, Rich, I've read in the Talmud, and that is the greatest gift in the world is the blessing of two generations. The teachings of a grandparent to a grandchild is the most important lesson to keep civilization alive because that length of time that bridge of years is what the ancient wise men 2,000 plus years ago thought was necessary to keep society healthy, vibrant, and alive. So to all the grand folks out there, the lesson of two generations, be careful what you teach, be careful what squirrels you feed. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap it up, Stephen Tobolowsky on downtown. Stephen, thank you. It's so good to talk with you. As always, our best uh, to you and Anne, and uh, we, we wish you well and hope to see you all on the other side of this whenever that happens. Oh, thank you. And you know we'll be right on our way to Maine as soon as this is over. All right, we've got a belt waiting for you when you get here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Well, what did we tell you right there about storytelling ability? Stephen Tobolowsky with us. Ooh, and I think you chatted with him a little bit uh, after our conversation, Carrie. He still looks back very fondly at his time uh, here in studio when we, you know, we just happened to have a bottle of wine in studio that day. <laughs> <laughs> you think uh, he has come away from that with the uh, thought that that's what we have every day. And right. I'm not going to, you know, tell him that's not absolutely the case. Right. Some days we have beer. Some days it's rum. <laughs> Occasionally rum. <laughs> One never knows. Uh, it was so fun. Uh, well, it's hard to believe it was like three years ago now 
that mm-hmm. uh, Stephen and Ann came up and, and did a show here. Um, some readings from his wonderful book. And uh, and you you were their, uh, their tour guide for the eastern Maine area for a couple of days there. Yeah, uh, helping them get around town, uh, get to where they needed to be. And then uh, they had flown into Bangor but uh, needed to fly out of Portland because he had another speaking engagement down there a couple of days later. So was able to spend time with them driving down to Portland and uh, seeing them around Portland as well. So it, it was great. They both really engaging, uh, friendly people to, to have discussions with, whether it's off air or on air. They, they are they are wonderful folks. Yeah, that's why we love them here on the podcast and the show. Stephen Tobolowsky. Hey, we'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance and come back with somebody who will already knows their way around our little town as she grew up here, has gone on to become a very successful novelist, Mamieve Medwed, on her newest after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. If they asked me, I could write a book about the way you walk and whisper and look. Nicely played there, Mr. Haskell. <laughs> Our next guest is uh, the author of a number of books, including her brand new one, Minus Me, also a native of Bangor, Maine. We had a wonderful time talking with author Mamieve Medwed. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be back in Bangor. Well, yes, indeed. I, I wanted to wait until you were on to point out that you were born right here in Bangor. Absolutely. And a proud graduate of Bangor High School, among other things. All right, that's two of us that graduated from Bangor High School. Oh, really? Yes. One of us has clearly done more with that diploma than the other, but that's fine. I, <laughs> I don't think so. I want to talk about your name as well because uh, it is a, a unique first name, and I understand uh, that that's a tribute to your grandparents. Yes, um, two grandmothers. One was a Mamie, and the other was an Eva, and it's been the burden that I've carried for my whole life. Oh, no, it's good to have a unique name. People remember it, right? Well, they remember it. I remember when I was complaining, my mother said, every babysitter you had will call her first daughter Mamie's. And I've been Googling, and I cannot find any other Mamie's in Bangor, Maine. Now, we also got a message after we posted on uh, social media that you were going to be on the show uh, from uh, a good friend of the show, Upton Bell, who said you live right around the corner from him. Oh, you're kidding. And I, well, before COVID, I used to see him all the time in our local ice cream store. Yeah, he's interviewed me. He is quite a neighborhood character he is that absolutely yes. well i love this new book it is it's such a wonderful tale um let's let's talk about the two central characters uh, well, what can you tell people about annie and sam um well i wanted to write about a long-term really good marriage so that's what they have 
and and they're very complementary. One is extremely Annie is very um, competent, and Sam is really hapless. He 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 just you know he puts his coffee on top of the car and he drives (laughs) off. He can't find his keys. He loses everything, and so they're pretty much um, velcroed together. And I wanted to write about that and about um, there's a very dramatic mother who arrives on the scene, and I wanted to write about mothers well, and yes. daughters, and of course I wanted to write about Maine. Well, yes, and we'll get to, we'll get to Ursula in okay. a moment, but uh, yes, and Annie and Sam have a, what seems to be a pretty good thing going here in Maine, doing what they do. Yes, they're very happy. They they've never left. They grew up together. They went to high school together. They went to Bowdoin, and um, they came back and um, run a coffee shop. Not a coffee shop, a sandwich shop. And then, uh, as often happens, uh, real life intervenes, and uh, they reach a moment of, um, I would say, major stress in their lives. That's right. That's right. Annie gets a diagnosis, and she's terrified, and she's mostly terrified about how Sam could ever manage without her there to tell him what to do. And that's when uh, the book takes such what I think is such an interesting turn that uh, she, being being the planner of the family, begins yeah. to lay out uh, what what a world would be like for the family without her around. Yes, and she leaves a manual for him with all kinds of practical advice. You know, how to wear his pants, how to get his hair cut, where the what to do at the dry cleaners, you know, how to work the microwave, all the um, practical aspects of life. And uh, in the midst of that, her mom, Ursula, shows up. Yeah. She is uh, she is definitely a force to reckon with. First of all, the fact that she's impressed so much with Post-it notes, I found that striking. Oh, I love, <laughs> don't you love, I just love Post-it notes. <laughs> I do, too. I, I thought them. that was such a great detail. And I have my walls are covered with them, you know, little quotes and telling me what to do and stuff like that. So I, um, yeah, I love post-it notes. And she certainly, uh, well, uh, upsets the balance of things. Is that safe to say? Um, Yes, she's larger than life. She's extremely dramatic. She lives in New York, was an actress, is an actress, um, and is extremely bossy. And Annie is adores her, but is totally terrified of her. We're talking with Mamie Medwed here on downtown. Her new book is called Minus Me. I, one of the many things I enjoyed about this book is it, it's a real look at the difference sometimes between the families we're born into and the families that we make. Yes, yes. That's a wonderful um, observation. I, I, I'm going to use that. <laughs> well, please do. Yeah. Something about that book. But that's, that's true. You know, um, and Annie is born into this rather difficult family with a multi-married mother and a father whom she adores. And then everything twists around. So she quite, she finds out a lot of stuff and she has to rethink her whole past and her whole childhood. And as is so often the case, you've got the conflicting 
alliances there and, and you want to keep everybody happy, but that's made even more difficult when you know that you're exiting the stage. That's right. That's right. So it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff to deal with in this um, novel. But but can I just point out that, which doesn't sound like this, that it's actually funny. It's a comic novel and there's a lot of humor in it, even though the theme is quite serious. Well, that's funny. You should mention that because I was going to bring, bring that up next, that it, it sounds like an incredibly depressing story, and yet yeah. it is at times laugh out funny, uh, laugh out loud funny. And to me, that's what makes it such a, a wonderful book that, yeah, it, it breaks your heart. It makes you think an awful lot, but it also leaves you laughing and, and, and gives you hope. Thank you. That's lovely. I, well, you know, I'm always, um, I, I always feel as if we who write comedy are made to sit at the children's table. You know, we're considered less serious. But I think comic writers deal with everything, love, death, marriage, divorce, children, everything that the big, big time guys deal with. And we only do it with a bit of a comic twist. Well, you know, the, the old actor's line is that you're dying is easy. Comedy is hard. I, I always think it's more challenging to write something in a comedic vein while still speaking truths. I think that's true. I think you're, you're right. And it's hard. You you try to make it look really easy, you know, um, but it's hard to make it look that way. When you're creating a new book, does it does it begin with an idea? Does it begin with a, a specific character in mind, or does it change from book to book? Um, I think it changes. Sometimes it begins with a scene or with a character, or somebody tells me a very funny story. I, my first novel, <coughs> excuse me, was called um, Mail, and I got the whole idea for it because my mailman once rang my bell and said, what are those manila envelopes in the same handwriting you keep getting? And this was before email. So those were my um, self-addressed stamped envelopes of my stories that I was sending out to magazines that would be returned and rejected. And when I explained to him, he looked so sad. And I thought, gee, who is the most important person to a writer? And at that time, it was really her mailman. So it's a whole story about a woman <laughs> who falls in love with her mailman. Uh, there are also in the book a lot of wonderful Maine references. I, I love the folks at Maine Moose Movers. Uh, does, oh, yeah. <laughs> does Maine, in a way, uh, do the people uh, become, and, and the place itself become a character in the book? You're absolutely right. Maine is, you know, extremely important to me. And right now I'm looking at, um, in my kitchen, my, my cousin, also from Maine, gave me a sign from the Bangor House. Is the Bangor House still there? Well, it's there. It's not uh, It's not a hotel anymore. It's not it's a hotel. A, it's a, is it a senior living facility, I think, now? But it's it's still there, right on the corner of Main Street. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a sign that says Bangor House in wood with gold letters. Very, very fancy. That's my treasure. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, what was it about growing up here in Bangor that... Uh, inspired uh, that creativity? Um, well, I had a wonderful English teacher, whom I'm sure you didn't have, named Miss Mullen, because my parents 
both had her, and she was just brilliant, and she was a very exciting. Most writers will say they had, you know, a fantastic English teacher. So I had a wonderful English teacher in Bangor, and I always wrote. I used to, I used to draw cartoons and send them into magazines, and was completely surprised when they got rejected. <laughs> I used to write stories and poems. I wrote for the Garland Junior High School newspaper. I think I wrote a gossip column. But anyway, <laughs> I always wrote, and, you know, I loved growing up in Maine, and I loved Bangor, and I loved knowing all these people walking downtown. You'd bump into a million people you knew. It was really comforting. Well, see, now I had a, a wonderful speech teacher at Bangor High. Well, I oh, think who was, did you have? She was probably there when you were there, Barbara Brown. Barbara Brown. Yes. Oh my God, I loved her. Wasn't she? And she was beautiful and stuff. Did they do junior exhibition when you were there? They did. They had switched to something called All Bangor Night. That was sort of the yeah. next uh, phase of that. But she got me involved in speech competitions. Uh, encouraged me to do theater as well. And but you, you'll appreciate this knowing Barbara Brown when I walked into her class for the first time and she read through the role and she got to my name and she looked at me and she said, Richard, no, no, Kimball, no, no, you're, you're a Gilbert. I see you more as a Gilbert. It suits oh, you better. so funny. And for the rest of her life, whenever I would see her, oh, Gilbert, darling, how are you? Yeah, she was so dramatic, wasn't she? And <laughs> she came... When my first novel came out, I think it was in 1995, she came to the reading. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and it was at, oh, God, I can't remember where it was, Borders, I guess, which is no longer there. But she looked exactly the same, this jet black hair mm -hmm. in a bun and <laughs> beautiful. And, oh, God, she was a wonderful teacher. Well, that's great. Well, uh, this is a, a truly wonderful <laughs> book. It made me think about it. You know, I've got uh, I've got a little guy. I've got a little seven-year-old at home, and uh it made me think about, you know, what would I do uh, if I knew yeah. I were not going to be around? And, and I guess there's something comforting about uh, being able to, uh, as Annie did, lay out those plans a little bit and still have some impact. Yes, I think it, it was something that really kept her going. Um, and it was fun for me to write this manual. That was really a fun thing to do. A whole I love lists, and this is just a whole bunch of lists, lists, <laughs> lists. Do this, don't do this, find this, act this way. And it was really a fun thing to do. See, that's why I knew I would enjoy talking with you. Not only did I love the book, but I'm a list maker. I'm a, I'm a, a sticky note uh, kind of guy. Ah, <laughs> and ah. so it, it made perfect sense. Well, we have Barbara Brown in common. What there you go. Than that? Well, that, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Mamie, uh, the book is just a terrific. It's called Minus Me. It's been a delight to talk with you as well. We thank you so much for, for visiting with us today. Wish you much success with this and hope you'll come back uh, with the next book too. I hope so too. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. Gilbert. Thank you. <laughs> Maeve Medwed, the new book is called Minus Me. Fun conversation there with a little, little old Bangor high talk as well, which we always enjoy when it presents itself here. Uh, thanks to Mamie, thanks to Stephen Tobolowsky, and thanks to you for joining us this week on the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance. See you next time right here on Downtown.